Well, it is true. We are kicking off a new sermon series today. And as you can see on the screen behind me, it's called Misquoted. And throughout the series this summer, we're going to be looking at some commonly misquoted verses in the Bible. Now, we've all done this, myself included. It's easy enough to do, and it's innocent enough to do on how we misquote. You see, I rarely, rarely come across people who intentionally misuse the Word of God, but sometimes it accidentally happens, and perhaps how we read something or, or how we understand it. You see, what I'm not talking about in this series this summer is I'm, I'm not talking about when you accidentally reference a passage of Scripture, but isn't that found in the first book of Noah? which doesn't exist, by the way, right? Or, or you inadvertently credit the Bible with a, a familiar saying such as, to thine own self be true, which, which sounds maybe like Proverbs or something. Anyone know where that's from? Yeah, Hamlet. That's from Hamlet. That's not, not in the Bible. Or, for example, I'm not talking this summer about examples when perhaps you read like in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 where it seems to communicate that the disciples traveled throughout the region in a four-door Honda. Acts 2 chapter 1, it says the disciples were all in one accord. That's not what I'm talking about this summer. You see, at West Meadows, we hold the Bible in very high authority. And, and, and I love that about our people. We are lovers of the word. We want to, want to know, grow, and apply it to our lives well. And, and that's fantastic. And because I know that, I, what I don't want anyone to experience, I don't want anyone to experience like, feeling bad or guilty for having perhaps misused a passage. There's going to be about 10 of them throughout the summer. So there's a chance I might bring up one that you've used before, and you might find that, oh, maybe I shouldn't have brought that up. Guilt and feeling bad about this is not the purpose. Exactly, the exact opposite is the purpose. You see, it, it, I'm hoping that this will be an informative series. I'm hoping this will be an encouraging series. Uh, dare I say this might even be a fun series? Uh, is it okay to have fun in church? Yeah, it might even be a fun series at moments. But it's also a very important one. You see, because what we think about God... And what we think about the Word of God matters in how we understand the way that we relate to God. It matters in understanding how we worship Him as well. And I came across a video actually on Instagram this past week that I think really encapsulates the importance of quoting people properly. And maybe those of you who are on social media, on Instagram, have come across these. I think it's a bit of a series of them. But to give you an example, to sort of describe this video to you. It starts with a rather close-up picture of, of a young lady's face, and she is sobbing, like just sobbing. Her eyes are puffy. Her makeup is stained and streaming down her face. And, and she says, this morning, after seven years and two babies, my husband told me he doesn't love me anymore. And then off camera, you can hear the frustrated but compassionate male voice go, honey, that's not what I said. And as the camera pans to him, he goes, what I said is you can't have another puppy. You already have three. And as she burst into tears, she goes, it's the same thing. It's not the same thing. You see, it's important for ourselves and for others in our lives that we make sure that we are quoting God properly. See, because God is the primary way, one of the most important ways that we learn about God. And sometimes I wonder, and when I about how I've used scripture in the past, innocently enough, or about how I hear others sometimes use it, again, 
innocently enough? I kind of wonder, if the author was a fly on the wall, what would they be thinking? I I can picture Luke or or Paul or Moses going, that's not what I said, or at least that's not what I meant, as they wrote these verses. So I want to start today with one. One of the most quoted verses we'll come across about a biblical promise related to prayer. Now, the setting earlier in the service. In the passage that Ron read during our time of worship in in 1 Chronicles, it's a time of David giving a prayer of thanksgiving for all of the resources that have been gathered for the building of the temple. But God told David that he wouldn't be the one to build the temple. He'd be the one to gather much of the resources, but his son Solomon would be the one who would actually build the temple. And so then a few years later, when Solomon comes to power, and a couple years into his reign, he sets the nation to work to establish this temple for God to dwell within. And it took seven years to build the temple. 200,000 workers, craftsmen, the finest of the artisans from across the land, came to build this magnificent temple. When they finished the structure, they set to work to build and to create all of the furnishings to go inside this temple. After seven years, 200,000 workers finally reached a point where the Ark of the Covenant could be brought into the temple. The Ark of the Covenant was created and established back in the time of Moses, that the nation had carried with them through the wilderness and throughout all their journeys in the promised land. Finally, there's a house, the Ark of the Covenant, and God could dwell within. And so they brought the Ark in with music and festivities and sacrifice. And once that was placed in the temple, with all of the nation assembled in front of the temple, King Solomon knelt before the altar and he raised his hands and he offered a prayer of dedication to the temple. And in this prayer, which you can read for yourself in in 1 Kings and and, and 2 Chronicles chapter 6, Solomon prays and he praises God for God's greatness that that he has made to the nation throughout the generations. He asks of God that that God would accept this temple as, as an offering, but also as a suitable place for where God could dwell so that the people could come there and and worship God and and seek him. And if they would come there and seek him, they could they could humbly ask to be restored through repentance. And then they could find hope. They could experience blessing. And they could yield themselves to God's leading and his judgment in their nation. He offers this incredibly beautiful prayer. Such beauty and detail that it matches the stunning architecture and materials used in the creation of the temple. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, we're told that God hears their prayer. And he appears to Solomon and he confirms that yes, he will dwell in this temple. And he offers a promise about his dwelling within this place. And this is where the often misquoted verse comes up. You see, because in chapter 7, verse 14, God promises what would happen when the people came to the temple. And he says this, If my people who are called by name will humble themselves and pray, and if they will seek my face and they will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. You heard that verse before? Imagine most of you, if not all of you, have heard that before. Have you used that verse before? I have. I know I have. Many, many times, especially at prayer meetings. It's a great verse. It's a wonderful verse. 
It's calling people to humble themselves, to repent, to pray, to seek God in times of need and strife. What could possibly be wrong with quoting this verse and claiming this promise for ourselves? Fair question. Those are all timeless truths. God's desire for people to yield themselves to him, to, to humble themselves, to pray, to seek, to repent. Timeless truths. But remember, what we think about God impacts how we relate to him. What we think about God and what was our relationship to him. And this promise, the promise in this verse was not for us. The promise in this verse, as we're going to come to understand it today, may reach a point where you may not even want it at the end. Let me explain to you what I mean. You see, all passages of Scripture exist within a specific historical, cultural, and theological setting. It's what we refer to as context. Now, I've already given you the historical and cultural setting in the creation, the dedication of the temple. The text is actually given by God himself in his response to the dedication in the temple. And we see this in the very first words, actually. When God made this promise in this verse to people called by my name, which is understood very clearly to be a specific reference to the nation of Israel. See, this chapter is an ongoing story between God and his chosen people, which is rooted in the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant that started all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, where God established a promise with Abraham. And in that promise, and it's important to keep this in mind, Genesis 12, verses 1 and 3, we're going to come back to that later. God promised him that I will make your name great. I will make you into a great nation. And that great nation, I will bless you and I will bless it. And they will be a blessing to all nations. And then generations later, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and other laws in Exodus chapter 20. Which are specific instructions that explain how to maintain that relationship. To explain how to follow God in the land in which they will live. And it's Ten Commandments that they followed. It's, it's given to the descendants of Abraham that creates a distinction upon how God's people live versus all the other nations around them. And then after the nation wanders through the wilderness for 40 years, they come to the edge of the promised land and they're about to enter into step foot on the land upon which they will establish this kingdom that generations later Solomon will build this incredible temple. And as they stand on the border about to cross in, in Deuteronomy 28, God declares to them, when you cross over, if, then I will bless you. But if you disobey me, then I will curse you. And look, to the people who are called by God's name, in 2 Chronicles chapter 14, we see the same if-then clause still applied. And it creates a beautiful promise, but a conditional language attached to it. If my people who are called by name, my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked ways, then I will forgive their sins and I will heal their land. If my people repent, then I will forgive them. This is a specific promise given to a specific people in a specific nature. And it's one that we want to be careful to not just pluck out from its context. 
Because it would be, it, it, to do so, going to a wedding, where you sit in the pews, and then you look up on the platform where, where two lovebirds come to stand before you know, God, family, and friends, and to declare, declare their love to each other, in particular through vows. You know, for example, like 26 years ago, when, when Nadine and I got married, and I said to her, I, I said, I, Mark, take you, Nadine, to be my wife. And these things I promise you. I will be faithful to you and honest with you. I will respect, trust, help, and care for you. I will share my life with you, and I will try to better understand ourselves, our world, and God through the best and through the worst of whatever is to come as long as we may live. Now, as you hear those words, some of you might be thinking, oh, this makes my heart melt. Others thinking it makes my stomach turn, right? <laughs> I don't know where you are. But it would be nicer if Nadine, Nadine's volunteering in children's ministry, so her absence is not an indication of a violation of the vows. It's, she's, she's volunteering over there. You can tell her how sweet that was afterwards, right, when, when you see her. Anyways, you know, many people were gathered to hear our vows exchanged that day. Many hearts melted and, and, and eyes wept at that. That's great. There's a common sentiment that we love those people things, those, those expressions, those, those desires, we want them in our own lives. But even if there's a collective agreement on the sentiment of those vows, that was for Nadine alone. Even though many were present at our wedding that day, only she and I were married by that promise that day. So let me take this a step further, though where we take these vows that I made to Nadine, and then they start to lose their appeal a little bit if I also add in not just the exclusive nature as to who they're intended for, but I also add in the if-then clause. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to say anything. You already know, right? If, I, you know, I, Mark, take you, Nadine, to be my wife, and these things I promise, if you let me go golfing every weekend, then I will be faithful and honest with you. If you laugh at all of my dad jokes as the congregation does, then, as the congregation does, there we go, then I will respect you, right? As long as we both shall live, which may not be too long for me after vows like that. But you, you kind of get the sense. It's for a specific person with an if-then clause, and it's all of a sudden it loses its appealing nature. But here's the challenge. Many people, many religions believe that that is the nature, that is the basis of their relationship with God. That is the nature of the salvation that they claim and try to live under. It's based upon an if-then clause. If I attend enough worship services, then God will bless me. If I obey enough of his commands, then he will hear my prayers. If I do enough good things, then God will accept me. If I repent, then Jesus will ascend the cross. And forgive me of my sins. And see, viewing our relationship with God and viewing just how we relate to him through this fashion, it creates a conditionally based relationship that leads to legalism, fear, and uncertainty. And the status of that relationship in that context is so often gauged by how we feel. I feel like things are going well. I'm doing a lot of good things and I'm avoiding a lot of bad things. And because I feel good, God must feel good. And if I feel good, God feels good, then we're happy that I'm saved. But then stress at work builds up. 
Stress at home starts to build up, and we hit a bit of a bad streak. Not doing as many good things as I used to. You know, I kind of doing a little more of the bad things that I shouldn't be doing. I'm not feeling as faithful. I'm, I'm just not feeling it as much. And so if I'm not, then, then I feel this distance. I feel like I'm cut off from God. I feel like I've been removed from his family, so I need to earn my way back in. And we start to believe in a salvation that's like a light switch. God flips it on and on based upon our goodness. And when we see this if-then clause, the implications it can have upon how we relate to God, if it's based upon that, the result ends up being, if I can do better, if I can be better, then God will love me. Does God want people today to pray, to seek him, to repent, to follow him faithfully? Absolutely. Yes, those are timeless truths that we do see in this verse. Absolutely. But we need not claim somebody else's promise, especially when he has made us a better one especially when he has made us a better promise. See, what I've just described for you that comes from the book of 2 Chronicles exists within the time and the context and the history and the theology of the Old Covenant, the First Covenant, also referred to as the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. But God made a new promise, a new promise that we find in the New Covenant, the one upon which we live under, the one of which Jesus is the mediator of. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant and the new promise of the New Testament based upon his death upon the cross, which is the foundation of the promise that we receive. And the way we experience God, the way that we relate to God, the way that we understand salvation, the way we experience the promise of the new covenant is changed Because Jesus, let me show a few ways that it's different. You see, God's promise for us is not one based upon one nation. God's promise for us is based upon Jesus, who is for all nations and all ethnicities. Immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection, he commanded his small group of Jewish followers to do what? To go and make disciples of who? All nations. All nations baptizing them and teaching them everything about him. And we read the book of Acts. You don't get more than one chapter in. And in chapter 2, when they're in that accord, right, driving around their Honda, in chapter 2, we see at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit indwells them, and they start to declare the glories and goodness and wonders of God in all different languages. Why? So that people from all lands who were there in Jerusalem at that time could hear the wonders of God in their own tongue. And the disciples are then sent out to all places to share the good news of who Jesus is in the power and in the will of God. Along the way, God gets a hold of a man named Saul who is persecuting the church and persecuting Jesus. And he gets a hold of him and transforms him, giving him new life in Christ, changing his name from Saul to Paul, who goes from being the greatest persecutor of the church to the greatest builder of the church. And he goes out to all the regions to witness to the Gentiles, meaning everyone basically who is not a Jew. 
And his message was that all people, all nations, could now be grafted into God's family tree by faith in Jesus Christ. And he ties together this grafting in by faith in Jesus, this new promise to the Old Testament promise together in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. What did he tell Abraham? Genesis chapter 12. All nations will be blessed through you. So, those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, Genesis 12, starting in Genesis 12, right through every page of Scripture, it has always pointed to the day when all people would be included in God's family, when all people would be welcomed into his family by faith in Jesus Christ. And so to anybody who may be here on site or watching us online, to anybody who may have felt left out, who may have felt excluded, who may have felt like they were not good enough, like they were not welcomed, you have to stand outside the event because you're not on the list. Anyone who was declined a seat at the table because you have no reservation, anyone who wanted to attend the royal wedding but you were not distinguished enough to be in the company of those people, anyone who ever walked into a church with their head held low and their eyes pointed to the ground because they were unworthy, hear this. In the family of God, in the church of God that proclaims the name of Jesus Christ and says there's only one way to find salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ, you have a new promise. The promise is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. The promise is that you have been invited to the wedding, that your sinful garments that you are ashamed by have been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. You can lift your head high. You can hold your hands high in praise of the one who loved you enough to send his son to make it possible that you could call him Father. Amen? Everything changes with Jesus. Here's a second difference between the old and the new promise. The old promise was not a promise for us. It was a conditional one. But that has been made complete in Jesus. You see, the promise that God established with Israel was not incorrect, and it was not useless by any means. But it was limited. See, it defined how they could maintain a relationship. It defined how they could stay in faithful, committed relationship with God. It explained how they could continue to be called his people, called by his name. But it lacked the power to provide salvation. It was only able to maintain a relationship and to cover sin. That was temporary, though. Because as we know, all of us continue, even our best efforts, we continue to sin. And that's why year after year, they would make sacrifice after sacrifice at the temple. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says in chapter 10, verse 1, the law, speaking of the old, the old covenant, the, the Mosaic promise, the law is only a shadow of things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifice as repeatedly, endlessly offered year after year, make perfect those who are drawing near to worship. There were those who were drawing near to worship to maintain the relationship, to, to try to stay in faithful commitment to God. They were drawing near to him, but as it says here, it could never make them 
perfect. But the new promise. In the new promise, God intended to deal with our sin, to restore fellowship for all people with him, for everyone whose heart was turned towards him. And Jesus became the mediator of that new promise through his death upon the cross, where by one perfect sacrifice, he became the only way to the Father. As it says in chapter 10, verse 10, we have been made holy. We've been cleansed. We've been made perfect through the sacrifice of Jesus. Through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus once for all. You see, under the new covenant, we have an opportunity to receive salvation as a free gift. And there is only one if-then clause left. And it's this. If, in faith, you believe the work of Jesus upon the cross was sufficient to pay for your sins, then you will be saved. It is not conditional upon our good works. It is made complete by his works. It is not an on-off thing based upon our goodness and our feelings. It is made perfect in and by Jesus Christ. Our good works become the evidence, become the expression of the relationship of which we have. And then finally, the third difference we see in this promise is that God no longer dwells in a temple made of stone. Because of Jesus, we are his temple. See, during the time of wandering in the wilderness, the people were instructed to create a tabernacle, which they would use to carry around, which is, they would set up, and that's where God would dwell amongst the people, and they would move it around. And eventually, as they came to the promised land and established the kingdom, they, they built a permanent structure, the temple. The tabernacle and the temple were the center of life, center of Jewish life in that time. It's where you went to do sacrifices. It was where you went to worship, as we've seen in 2 Chronicles. And right in the middle of the temple is this thing called the Holy of Holies. That's where God dwelt. And there was his dwelling there, and everyone else dwelt outside of that. There's a separation that existed. A separation to the point where once per year, the high priest would go through a, a ritual cleansing of himself, of clothing and, and purifications, and he would go into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the entire nation. And, and, and some of the stuff that he would, he would go through to prepare himself to stand in the presence of where God dwelt, to try to make himself a, a presentable to God, it included things like a bell. Why'd he have to wear a bell? Well, because as long as you can hear the bell ring and the guy's not dead for standing in the presence of God, the minute you hear a ding, 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 and then nothing for a while, something went wrong, right? Josephus tells us that sometimes that would happen, and so they started a, a, a tradition of tying a rope around the priest's waist. So if the bell didn't get heard for a little while, you could pull the corpse out with the rope. Separation between God and between people. And to limit the access of where God dwelt and where people dwelt, they would hang a curtain, 60 feet tall, four inches thick, that would separate the dwelling of man and the dwelling of God. Then on the day that Jesus died, we read in Matthew 7, that as Jesus hung on the cross, 
And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice and he gave up his spirit, verse 51, at that moment the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Because now the Holy of Holies, now the presence of God was open to all people for the first time. Do not miss the significance of that temple curtain being torn from top to bottom. As God says, the old promise that, that, that was able to continue sacrifices but never complete them has now been fully atoned for. Because the new promise of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sin has been atoned for. The barrier has been removed. Now all people can approach God without fear, without bells, without ropes, because in Jesus the wrath of God has been satisfied. For all those who turn their hearts towards him, who believe in him and who place their trust in the work of Jesus Christ, for those people there is a new hope. There is new life, there is new future, there is new freedom, and there is a new heart. And because of that new life made in them through Jesus Christ, they are temples fit for God to dwell. Which is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when he says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You see, our Heavenly Father created our bodies. The Son of God redeemed them, and the Holy Spirit indwells them. Here's an interesting point. He calls our bodies temples. Could have called them houses. Could have called them homes. He could have referred to them as residences. But the intentional word chosen was temple. And I think it exists on two levels. On one level, it reflects the completeness of the work of Jesus Christ, that God could dwell in such perfect unity and communion and fellowship, not because of us, but because of him. But on the other level, I think it's an important word, temple, because it speaks to how we should act how we should behave, how we should think, how we should speak. We should be cautious of what we allow into our temple. When, when I think of this image sometimes, and, and, and stick with me on this one, I think it'll make sense to you, it, it makes sense to me. <laughs> as, as I think about a situation, the, the beautiful image of when a woman learns that she's pregnant, and she knows that there's this treasured new life within her body, and it changes so much about how she lives. She suddenly becomes much more cautious about the food she eats, about the medications that she's taking. She will start to abstain from, if she had been smoking or drinking or doing drugs ahead of time, perhaps for the first time in many, many years, she'll find the strength and purpose to stop because of the new life that exists within her. She'll add stuff to her life, like start taking some supplements for increased health, doing things on a daily basis that help her to grow healthy herself and this new life within her. I've also seen and experienced firsthand that when, when pregnant women add things to their lives, they sometimes add things like barbecue corn chips and peanut butter for par, peanut butter parfaits. Because Nadine would scoop the ice cream with the corn chip, and apparently that's what baby wanted. Right? I've also seen olives and cheese whiz. It happens too. I heard pickles are a big one. 
but we had, they had things to their lives. Things get avoided. Things are cautious. Things are added. But this is all evidence of, of new life within this person and their desire to honor and to nurture that new life. Therefore, if we are temples of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit dwells within us and gives new life within us, we too need to be cautious on how we think, act, behave, relate, and speak. Cautious about what we allow our temple to be exposed to. This verse we looked at today, folks, I think it exists on two levels. The message has two aspects to it around this one verse. This verse that is, that is sometimes quoted, misquoted at least impartially. Because remember, what we think about God, what we read and understand about God affects how we relate to and how we worship him. So on the one level, does God want people to pray, to seek him, to repent, to follow him faithfully? I think you're going to join me in saying arousing, yes, absolutely, timeless truths. And these are ways that we receive, honor, and nurture the new life that is made possible within us by Jesus Christ. But on another level, we do not need to claim somebody else's conditional promise, especially when we have an even better one made perfect by Jesus Christ. And that sacrifice of Jesus, what he accomplished, is represented by the elements on the communion table in front of me today. So I want to take a few minutes to prepare ourselves as we wrap up the message and move towards communion to just ask you to, to think about how you've been relating to God in this conditional if-then situation or claiming the promises and wanting to honor and live within it. See, many try to have a relationship with God that is based upon good works and their own efforts, and it's this constant sense of, of falling short, this constant sense of frustration, that even our best offerings done in our own and of ourselves fail to resolve the sin problem that separates us from God. And if you have ever tried to live without God, you know what I mean. No matter how much you try, how many new things you try in your own strength, your own power, of your own creation, it still leaves you searching for something more. And that something more is Jesus. It is Jesus and the gift of forgiveness and love that he offers. Because he is the only one who is worthy to not just cover sins, but to cleanse us from our sins. Jesus is God's gift of love to the world. Jesus is God's offering in our place to pay the price for our, our sins so that whoever should believe in him would not be condemned but would have eternal life. And on this table in front of me, hopefully holding in your hands, you have the elements of the bread, symbolic of his body, in which he lived and ministered but ultimately offered as a sacrifice that was lifted up and nailed to a cross but also a cup, symbolic of his blood that was poured out to cover our sins, symbolic of the cost of our sin. All who have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are welcome and invited to participate in communion with us today. If you have not done that, though, I just need to say to you, stop living apart from God. You were made to live in relationship with God. And God made a promise and made a way for that to be possible in your life. And you can simply make it a reality by praying 
right now, wherever you sit, whether it be in a pew in the sanctuary or, or watching online, by simply saying, thank you, Jesus, for doing what I could not do. Thank you for paying for the sins that I committed but could not afford. Lord, I believe that your work upon the cross was sufficient. I believe that you had victory over sin, death, and the grave. And I accept your free gift of salvation. You gave your life for me. I give you mine from this day forward. If you prayed that, if you need to pray that, welcome to the family of God and welcome to the table where we celebrate. If you're online and prayed that, you can click right there and let us know so we can celebrate with you. If you're on site, I would love to talk and pray with you after the service online. There's people to pray with you there as well. For those of us who are part of the family of God who accepted and believe and faith in the work of Jesus Christ, let's take this moment now for ourselves to humbly pray, to repent of anything that we may need to let go of, and to seek God before we take the elements.